Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 14. And I want to get right into the reading of the text tonight. I'm not going to give you a long introduction here to try to settle into things. So I want you to find those scriptures rather quickly, if you would, and stand with me. And we're going to go right into the message. First, the reading of God's Word, and then right into the message tonight. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who have come tonight to hear your word. We just pray, Lord, that you'd give us a a blessing from what we learned tonight and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We come back, back once again to this, these opening verses of the 14th chapter. And like so many other passages of scriptures that we find throughout the Word of God, uh, we find hope in this text in uncommon ways. I, I've told you that I'm not absolutely sure about whether this is a scene that takes place in heaven or whether we're uh, talking about uh, a scene on earth and the saints of God are now in the millennial kingdom, I don't think it really makes a difference to the meaning of the text because what it's speaking of here is the final overcoming of God's people. And we find a, a very important word that's mentioned eight times in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's relevant to our discussion, and it is that word overcometh. Uh, John uses it eight times in this book. One example we find in Revelation 3, verse number 12, where it says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Interestingly enough, the Apostle John is the only writer of the New Testament who actually uses this word. All 11 occurrences are found in the writings of John. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, he describes to us and gives us the meaning of this term overcomers. He says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And so an overcomer is one who does believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And that means that the person actually has a heart belief. This is a person who has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's been cleansed from all of his sins. There's a good work that's been begun in his heart through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And through that work of God, this person overcomes the world without fail. Those who know Christ will overcome the world and they'll dwell with him forever. 
Now, last week I, I did say that we have much difficulty uh, determining the place of verse number 1 in the text. If it's in heaven, then it means that the 144,000 have been killed by the Antichrist. And even though that they have lost their lives, they're still overcomers because their souls are safe. And here we see them in the blessings of heaven. There they are in that eternal state. And their deaths is actually no indication that Satan has overcome them. They aren't defeated because God has promised us that he's going to redeem the soul, the spirit, and the body. The body is going to be raised to be with Christ. And so whether these are dead or alive, they are overcomers. But then we may also be talking about an earthly scene. And the 144,000 then have come through the great tribulation period and they're unscathed. It was a very difficult time. There was much temptation that they had to endure, but they have remained faithful to the Lord. These are people who would not receive the mark of the beast. Uh, God protects them, and then he brings them into the millennial kingdom. And so here, if this is a picture upon the earth, they are standing on Mount Zion. They're in the city of God, and there they're with Christ who rules and reigns from the throne of David in an earthly kingdom. So in either case, whether we're talking about heaven or talking about earth, they're overcomers. Now, surely there will be millions of martyrs that will uh, die during the tribulation period, but not one of them who dies knowing the Lord is going to be lost. And then millions will go into the millennial kingdom without having died. And, of course, they're not lost, and they have not succumbed to the powers of darkness. And so, as I've said, this is just another text that gives comfort to God's people. We read chapters 12 and 13, and and there were threats there. It looked very bleak for believers. But as Revelation so often does, we begin to read and we see all the bad things and uh, the terrible times that are going to happen. And then God just brings us along, and there's one more text, one more place in the book that brings us hope. And so we do see that in this text. God is sovereign. God is still in control. And he controls every detail of time and eternity. Well, in my attempt to narrow down the exposition of these first five verses, I've chosen six words that describe the characteristics of 144,000. Now, before we get to that list or get back to the list, I want to remind you of something that I mentioned last week, and that's the difference between this group of people, this 144,000, and other believers that we see in verse number 3. Now here we see, uh, well, first I'll say that we, we really ought to be thankful that for everybody who trusts Christ and everybody who knows the Lord is going to be in heaven. They're going to reach that heavenly home. But there is a distinction between believers when they get to heaven. And the distinction in this particular place is marked out by the term elders. The 144,000 are different from the elders that we see in this passage. Now, the elders are the same ones that we saw back in chapter 4. They're the ones that sit on 24 thrones that are around a central throne of God. I believe that those elders represent all of the redeemed of God in all ages, from the Old Testament period into the New Testament period, all the way up to the time of the rapture. Now, there are some people who think that there are 12 of those who represent the tribes of Israel and the other 12 represent the church age. 
But whichever it is or whatever they stand for, we do know that they're different than the 144,000 because these 144,000 come neither from the Old Testament or from New Testament times, from the church age, and we see that they don't occupy the same position as the elders. They don't have thrones, and so they're, they're not in that same exalted position. Now, if you want to catalog that information away, uh, this is one of the places, if you want to mark it in your Bible, it's one of the places where we learn that there are degrees of blessings in heaven. Now, just like there are degrees of punishment in hell, there are also degrees of blessings in heaven. And the highest blessings of heaven are reserved for those who are the faithful of the Lord's church. Now, if you want to know why you ought to be uh, faithful to your church, why you ought to be a member of the church, why you need to be here when we have services such as this, because the faithful of the church are the ones who are going to be in the bride of Christ. Now, there are others that are described as being friends of the bridegroom. They're not in the bride. They don't have the same position as the bride. And so those who have this, have this blessed privilege to be in the bride of Christ are going to be in the most exalted positions of heaven. And so we thank God that we're living in this time when we can receive Christ now and we can become a part of his church and so we can be in his bride. So then we have uh, some one-word descriptions that I want to give you, the 144,000. These people are not part of the bride of Christ, but they are outstanding Christians. I mean, despite the fact that they don't have that privilege, yet they have come through much tribulation. They've remained faithful uh, to the Lord And they do have some outstanding characteristics. Now, if you remember, the first characteristic that I gave you of these people was their conduct, the conduct of these people. I mean, despite uh, living in a world that's uh, rife with corruption and despite living in a time when the Holy Spirit's uh, power has, has been restrained as far as keeping men from sin, there are millions of demons that are running throughout the world tempting people to sin. There's economic pressure, political pressure. There's tyrannical pressure to conform to the beast and, and all that he's doing. But these 144,000, according to the Scriptures, remain pure and chaste before God. All around them, there's this cultish, pagan worship. There's sexual perversion that's going on in worship much worse than any time that's described in the Old Testament period, worse than what Paul saw in the New Testament. Now, we know when Paul had to preach in places of the Roman Empire like Corinth, he would go into those cities. And Paul himself said, I went there with much fear and trembling. I mean, it was a fearsome thing to stand up in a place like that and preach the gospel of Christ. So much opposition. There was the temptation to fall into the sexual perversions that were going on in the worship there. But Paul resisted that. And this is what these 144,000 do. Their conduct is praiseworthy. They haven't defiled themselves with women. Uh, They they, uh, don't enter into that immorality that's characterized by the worship of the beast. Then the second word that we gave you last time was the word consecration. And that is their commitment to stick close to the Lamb. Verse number 4 says, They follow him wherever he goes. And so if that path should lead them into the valley of the shadow of the deaf, they're willing to go there. If they're told that they should quit preaching, they don't stop. They just preach with more zeal. And just like the apostles were told not to preach when they were in the temple area, they said, we can't but speak the things that we've seen and heard. And so these are people that keep on preaching. They have instructions from the Lamb, and so they keep on following. 
And so, no, no matter how dark and fearsome that path may be, the Lamb is in front of them, and they keep their eyes on the Lamb, and they just keep walking in His footsteps. And that is what happens when you keep your eyes on Christ. The enemy that's around you and the troubles that surround you are not as fearsome. They're not as troublesome to you when you keep your eyes on the Lamb. It's just when you start to take your focus off of Him. And when you start to look side to side, that's when you're in danger of falling into temptation. But when you keep your eyes on the Lamb, that's when you remain in the right path. You know, there's an interesting uh, verse in our closing hymn that we sing on Sunday nights. We sing the song, His Way with Thee. And there's a a phrase in that song. It says, uh, would you have him save you so that you need never fall? Have you ever noticed the wording of that? That it doesn't say, would you have him save you so that you can never fall? It says, need never fall. And the reason it says that is because you can fall. Philippians chapter 37 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he can fall, but though he fall... He shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. And so when you do stumble and fall, you're not cast away from God. You don't lose salvation, but the Lord reaches down and he holds you up. But I think it's noteworthy that the song says that you need never fall. Because when you keep your eyes on Christ, when you're following the Lamb wherever he goes, you need never fall, because you're in the right path. And this is what these do. They stay in the right path. They keep their eyes fixed on the Lamb, and so they need never fall. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, let's look at another word that describes them. The third word is the word calling. These have been called by God. Now, there are many different directions that we could take on this, and one thing we can surely see that the number of those that are called out is a very specific number. God could have called 175,000. God could have called 2 million if he wanted to. But this is a very definite number. It's not a representative number. And there are some who say that. They say, well, the number's not really important. 144,000, that doesn't mean a specific number. But all that means is standing for a great number of people. But God's very precise. God knows what he's saying. The number is very specific. In fact, we go back to chapter 7, and there we find that there are 12,000 called out of each tribe of Israel, not 11,999 and not 6,034, but 12,000 out of each of 12 tribes. And these are the very same ones, when we get to chapter 14, that we see that the whole number of them is still intact. There's 144,000 of them. The number hasn't increased. It hasn't diminished. God has called out a very specific group. There aren't some who wander into the group and some who wander out of it, but each one of them has been specifically called, and each one of them makes it all the way through to God's appointed time. And so these that are originally called, they come out on the other side. Not one of them is lost on the way. Now, God is so specific and, go, and so precise that he could have said, oh, 144,000 that have been called, 139,857 got through, and that's a pretty significant number, isn't it? That's a pretty good percentage. We'll just call that good. But that's never good enough for God. Every single one of them must come through. Every last one of them. Because if they don't, that means that God is a failure. And Scripture says that God cannot fail. But I'm not going to spend so much time on that part. I think anybody who 
who studies the Bible in any kind of detail and has an open mind about this, really, you can't miss the very pointed statements that are made in Scripture. All of these statements show the consistency of God's character. God does not work on unknown contingencies. God knows what's going to happen. Everything, every contingency is accounted for in God's plan. But these are called, they're separated, they've been called out of this pervasive wickedness of the world, and they've been called to be witnesses. Now, verse number 4 says that they are first fruits. Now, those, or what that means is that these are the first to be called out of the tribulation to go into the millennial kingdom. Now, some time ago, we were studying in 1 Corinthians, and we saw this word first fruits in 1 Corinthians, and I told you then that first fruits means the first part of the harvest. The first part of the harvest is a is an offering that's brought to God, and it's a guarantee that there's much more to follow. When Christ arose from the dead, it called him the firstfruits of the resurrection. That meant because Christ came out of the grave, because his body came out, then there would be many, a multitude that would follow him in the resurrection. So here we find that there are 144,000 astounding witnesses that fan out through all of the world. And so a great multitude hears the witness. They hear the gospel that they preach and they come to Christ. And there are many who are brought into the millennial kingdom. There are fruits that follow. These people are first fruits. And because of their faithfulness of of preaching God's word, others are brought into the kingdom. Now, I think I I need to remind all of us that there is a practical application in every text that we read in Revelation. We see the practicality of doctrine in that we've been chosen by God for salvation. We see the practicality of doctrine in that we are preserved eternally in our salvation. But we also see a great application of the work of the 144,000. I believe that their work is also our work. God has called us to serve him. God has called us to bring other people into the kingdom. And I believe that the call that God has given every single Christian in this room today is just as literal as the one that he gave the 144,000. Now, all we're talking about is a difference in time. They're bringing people into the physical kingdom that God will establish. And God has called us to bring people into a spiritual kingdom. And didn't we learn that uh, as we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come. He wasn't talking about, or he was in some sense, talking about a physical kingdom that's coming. But it was also an evangelistic part of his prayer. And that he's talking there about us bringing people into the spiritual kingdom of God. When people are born again, when they receive Christ as Savior, they're brought into the kingdom of God. And that's our job right now. We need to bring people into the kingdom. And to the extent that we fall short of that, we are hindering God's kingdom from coming. I I do believe that if we keep our eyes on the Lamb, if we're honestly doing what we're supposed to do, and we watch the Lamb wherever He goes, then we'll have that focus. We'll keep bringing people into the kingdom of God. But when you change the focus, and the focus becomes you, or the focus becomes me, then we can't honestly pray that God's kingdom would come, because we are actually a hindrance to God's kingdom. Jesus spoke about that about those who are a hindrance to the kingdom of God. He said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. I think all of us need to realize our calling. We don't read these texts and explain them as a point of history. 
or if we're looking at the future, this is not a back to the future ride, but we are explaining these texts because there's something here for us to learn from. There's something here for every one of us to get out of this that God has called us to these good works. And he says you must walk in them. And the best work that we do is not any different than the work of these 144,000. They brought people to Christ. And that's the work that God has given us to do. Now, while we're speaking about their calling, we notice something different about those who follow the Lamb where he goes and those that are the counterfeits. Now, if you look in verse number 16 of chapter 13... It says, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, we've talked about that. That's that number, 666. All of the followers of the Antichrist must wear that number. If they don't, they're shut out from all commerce. Can't buy, they can't sell, no food, no shelter, no clothing. The Antichrist controls the very necessities of life. And he has a seal that identifies the people who follow him. But we notice here also that it says the redeemed have a seal. They have the Father's name, it says, written in their foreheads. Now think about that. This is really going to be a radical time. No matter who you meet, one way or another, everybody is going to have a seal in their foreheads. And either that's 666 or it's the Father's name. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how that's going to be done. Uh, is that a visible mark, or do you have to pass it under decoder? Do you have to have a black light in order to see it? I don't know. I just know that everybody's going to have a mark in that time. Either it's the mark of the beast, or it'll be the mark of the Father. And then a fourth word that we have about these people is the word conversation. Usually when we say conversation and we're Relating that to the King James Bible, we're we're talking about the manner of life or how a person lives his life. But conversation in that context also means actually the way that we speak or conversation just like the way that we use the term today. And I think that the way people speak tells a great deal about those people. You know, I've never met a person who could use vile, filthy language that I ever thought was either intelligent or a Christian. I've never been a person that used bad language. I mean, that's not something I ever picked up in my life. Uh, I I just never got that habit. And I really do believe that, that people who speak in that way are very poor testimonies for the cause of Christ. And then, secondly, I think it also shows how poorly educated that a person is. Now, of course, I know there are a lot of smart people that use bad language. Smart doesn't always equate to practical intelligence. And I know a lot of Christians that are very, very conscious of the way that they speak, very careful that they say exactly the right thing and come to church and they would never think about using any bad language. But you set that person off with something, and if something goes wrong, just they can snap like that, and they can cuss a blue streak that would knock your socks off. And some of them are people that come to church, and they're the most holy ones when they get here, and they're the ones that... If you don't agree with them on everything, they're the first ones that will complain about that and the first ones that that talk about how holy they really are. Now, if you can turn loose with one of those streaks, I think that is a huge indicator of a hypocritical heart. The Word of God says that cursing and blessings do not come out of the same mouth, or they can't or shouldn't come out of the same mouth if your heart is right. But that's not all. I mean, it's not just the speech patterns. 
But it's also the attitude that's in speech. Now, we find something here again that's very practical. Verse number 5 says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, we can take that and contrast it to the Antichrist and his followers. Go back to chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. It says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. All of the people that follow the Antichrist have his same characteristics. And what they will do is they will join in in shouting down God's people. They'll mock God's name. They'll be just like the Antichrist. Now, Paul gives some uh, characteristics of the unregenerate, the, the attitude of speech of the unregenerate. He says in Romans chapter 1, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now let me call your attention there to the attitude of speech in the unregenerate. It says debate, deceit, whispers, backbiters, and boasters. Now that's the way that hell-bound sinners talk. But did you know that when Paul and the apostles ministered to people in the first century in those first churches that they dealt with many Christians on these very same issues. And don't you know this, that I have the very same kinds of things past my death, my desk rather, as a, as a pastor of Berean Baptist? The same things come to me. Debaters. Debaters on preferential issues who try to destroy the harmony of the church. Deceitful people that use the word of God unskillfully. Whisperers, sometimes even while the sermon's being preached, things that they don't like, and so they speak out loud so other people around them can hear them. Oh, I don't like what he said. I disagree with that. So you have people that are sulking and speaking loudly enough to disturb other people. Then you have backbiters, and those are the gossipers. They don't mind if they carry a rumor around. They don't care if it's true or it's false. They just have some news that they want to tell, bad news most of the time, and that's what gossip usually is. Then you have the boasters, and those are the big talkers. I mean, they talk big Christianity like they're really somebody who knows something, but you sit down with them in a five-minute conversation, and you find out very quickly what they know. They don't know very much, but what they're always willing to do, they're always going around pulling off scabs without being ready to deal with what lies underneath. And, you know, a pastor has to deal with that a lot of times. People like to go and pull off scabs, and they don't care what's underneath that you have to take care of. So that type of speech, that's typical of the Antichrist. This is, this is not God's people. That's not the way they act. Verse 5 is the character of these 144,000. It says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And isn't that a picture of Christ? I mean, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and, and wouldn't you think that they learned something from following him? 
Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Peter said, there is no sin in Christ. There is no guile found in his mouth. And I'm afraid that if Christ were to appear in this very room tonight, and he were to do a background check on many of us, that he would find a great deal of difficulty in trying to find some of us who would fit into this 144,000 that he calls out. You know, you would be amazed at some of the things that I learned from pastoring a church. I've learned that those who tell gossip and those who hear gossip are really not very much different. I mean, uh, neither a gossip or one who hears gossip can keep his mouth shut. Gossip says, well, I'm going to tell you this, but you have to swear that you don't tell anybody. And that person says, oh, I swear, I swear. And you know what they do? They go to the next person. I heard something. I'm going to tell you this. And you need to swear that you don't tell anybody else. And that person says, I swear. So when I pass some of you in the aisles, you have no idea that I know what you've been telling. You don't know how much that I know about you, but I just smile and I go on because I know that a gossip has his reward. You see, you're a person of guile. Uh, You put your confidence in the wrong people, because a person that you gossip to and listens to, I promise you, is not a good enough companion to stand by you. You know something? I think a gossip ought to be that discerning. He really ought to know that. If some person listens to you, then their character is not good enough to protect you, and so you're going down one way or the other. So the first person that you talk to who listens to your gossip, mark them off your friend list. They're not your friend because they're not a good enough friend to stick by you, and I can promise you. Well, these are believers with no guile. The the speech is good. And can you imagine what would happen to them if they couldn't be trusted? I mean, what if if they fought among themselves all the time? There's always a problem going on between them. They were vicious to one another. Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians? He says, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now, do you remember the context that he's talking about there? He's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about people who are on the inside of the church. He's not saying here, well, watch out for the wolves because they can get in and they can, they can uh, uh, eat the sheep. He's not saying that. He's, he's putting a contrast here, the irony of this, that instead of having wolves in sheep's clothing, you have sheep in wolves' clothing. It doesn't make sense for sheep to eat sheep. They don't do that. But as Grandpa Jones says, truth is stranger than fiction. You see it sometimes. So I think you get the picture here. There's all of this trouble that's going on on the outside, and the 144,000 cannot afford trouble on the inside. Now, here's one thing that we surely do know, is that Christ chooses people with guile. And that's because all of us are that way. Every single one of us, before we were saved, we were with guile. But what Christ chooses to do with us is to make us into people without guile. This is the way they are, good conduct. They're consecrated. They're called out. They have good conversation. And they need it. If they're going to survive in that tribulation time, they need this. They're going into the millennial kingdom. Now, we notice another word about them. Our fifth word is the word character. All of this has really been about character in one way or another. But can't you just kind of sum all of this up by by just saying that and combining all of these words and saying this is a person of good character? Verse 5 says, they are without fault before the throne. Ever wondered about how righteous that you would have to be to get that designation? You are without fault before the throne. 
Oh, each of us has faults. I mean, all of us are sinners. We know that. Uh, The best among us is a sinner. But aren't there some people that you look at their lives and you see that the way that they, they operate in the church, that they're really just a cut above the rest? Aren't there some people like that in the church? You know, I remember... Uh, when Grant Evans was first ordained as a deacon, I, I looked at his life, and I don't care who do you talk to. You, you don't find anybody has anything bad to say about Grant Evans. The worst thing that I've ever heard said about him is he's so stubborn because he won't stay off the ladders. I mean, that's the worst that we've found. I mean, his health is not as good as it used to be, but you find Grant here nearly every day doing something around the church or whatever he can be. He's here trying to do something. You can't find anybody who has a bad word to say about him. And if anybody tries, there would be a hundred people in Brian Baptist Church who would stand up and say, shut your mouth. Don't you say that about him. That can't be true because we know his character. We know that man. Now, is he without fault? You have to ask Marlene about that. But to me, to me, he's pretty close. He's pretty close as far as I'm concerned. He's a man of good character. Well, how did he get that way? I mean, how does he become a man of good character? Well, he didn't do it by sneaking around trying to dig up dirt on people. He didn't do it by going around and telling everybody everything that he knows. You don't become a person of character like that. You know, I have a little private thing that I know about Grant. It stretches all the way back to a few weeks before I became pastor of the church. Grant Evans stood up for me. And I'll never forget what he did for me. And... and His integrity, I believe, has a whole lot to do with the fact that I'm a pastor of this church today. You don't come to me and offer a bad word about Grant Evans. Don't speak to me in that way, because I know he's a man of character. But how many of us could actually count on that kind of response from other people? That when someone starts a rumor on us, when they say something bad about us, there are people all over the congregation that say, that can't be true about that person. I know him. I know, I know her. I know them better than that. They wouldn't do such a thing. And they would immediately shut down that talk. And they'd say, I don't want to hear that. Go talk to somebody else if you want to. But you don't talk to me because I don't want to hear it. You know, I, I don't think that there are a whole lot of us that rumors about us would be dismissed very quickly. But that's the character of Christ, isn't it? He was accused so many times. And you can't always stop accusations. I mean, the devil has his people out there that accuse the best of us. There's no question about that. I'm sure that there, uh, even though you may not come to me, there may be somebody who has something bad to say about Grant. I can't imagine what it could possibly be. But there are people out there. The question or the, or the, the thing here about it is, it, it's not what's said so much. It's where is the proof? And if you are a person of character, like the Lord Jesus was a person of character, I can promise you, when you go into the courtroom, you are going to win every time. These people are people of character. Now, I've met a few people like that in my uh, Christian service, and I treasure people like that when I find them. So the general character of these people is that they have no observable faults. But I think there's really more meaning to this. They truly are without fault because these 144,000 have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see, the most important thing is not what men think. Now, I think that we ought to be concerned about what people think about us. Some people say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks. I do. I care what you think about me. If you have a bad opinion of me, I want to know why. And if there's some way I can fix it, I want to fix it. But it's not so important as what people think about you as what God knows about you. 
Now, the thing about these people, they've been justified before God. And so when God sees them, what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's been given to them by faith. And what a testimony they have. Before men, no observable faults. No no one could make a, a true accusation against them. Nothing to be complained about. And then, in God's eyes, they truly are faultless because every sin has been hidden in Christ. Well, one more word, and then we'll be done. Number six is the word choir. Verse number two, And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. I like J. Vernon McGee's comment on verse number 3. He said, I've been a pastor for many, many years, and he said, I've heard a lot of harping, people harping on this and harping on that. And I know exactly what he's talking about. But the 144,000 are a part of a choir, and they sing a song about redemption. One of my favorite aspects of church, really, is I love choir. I'm glad that we have a choir, and I love uh, beautiful music that comes from choirs. I've had the opportunity in my life to visit a lot of big churches. Uh, For about a year, I was attending a church in Florida that had a really, really big choir. I don't know how many voices they had. I I suspect they had probably about 150 to 200 voices in that choir. And I love to go to church to hear the choir sing. Next month, or actually it's a little bit over a month now, it's in March, I'm going to the Shepherds Conference, and that's one of the things that I look forward to when I go there, the beautiful choir that sings. So I really like good choirs. But I can't imagine what it would be like to have 144,000 people singing in a choir. And we're talking here all people that have perfect pitch. Every one of them singing on the right key. These are voices that you could actually tune the instruments by. I mean, can you imagine a choir that's like that? Now, if they have a foghorn and... Jeff could be in that because they could tune it to the foghorn, but um, Jeff Shamley I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, uh, this is such a beautiful... I say that jokingly about Jeff. Uh, This is just a beautiful choir. And the song that they're singing is redemption song. Now, now we're not talking here about rap music. I mean, this is not head-banging music. This is music that honors God. And I don't think the words that they're singing here are going to be these mindless repetition choruses that you hear in so many churches today. And all this singing about, oh, it's so sweet and syrupy and how I'm going to put my arms around Jesus and how we're going to just skip down the street merrily along. Now, folks, we're talking here about glory to God in the highest. He's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And they're singing crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. I wouldn't be surprised if they're not singing a song, something like redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. This is going to be a marvelous choir. Now that is a huge turnaround from what we find in chapter 13. And that's why I say there's great hope. Hope is brought out of despair. And isn't that what God always does? When the picture is so bleak and it's so black, God does this for us. He brings hope out of despair. And so here they are singing their song. I think every time that you, that you face a crisis and you don't know where to turn, this is a good place to go. Go to Revelation chapter 14 and start reading about the 144,000. 
Not one of us will go through what they go through. But here is a very unique group, and God gives them their special place, and God gives them a special song that it says that no one but them can sing. Now, the reason he says that is because the peculiarity of their circumstances. Nobody goes through what they go through, and yet they overcome. They stay the course. They keep their testimony. They guard their mouths. They protect their character. And the best thing that you can say about them again is they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so I think that when you have troubled times, here is a place to go. When you need encouragement, you look at this and you find out that their encouragement is your encouragement. And you find out that their God is your God. And you find out that their Redeemer is also your Redeemer. The Bible, I think, teaches us that we also have a song to sing. And I think every one of us needs to go out and sing that song that God has put in our heart to the glory of God. And then we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity to stand before your people and and, and these characteristics that we've given tonight. I just pray, Lord, that these would be evident in the lives of your people. What a a, a going force that we could be for Christ. How could we win people to you and and bring people in if, if just these characteristics were our characteristics? And I pray, Lord, that that would be the heart of every person here, that we don't look so much around and see what others are doing and and take our cue from them and, and be angry or upset because of what others do. But, Lord, we keep our eyes focused on you and we serve you to our best ability. And we thank you, Lord, for the church that you've given us, that we can serve you in your church. Lord, bless your people. Bless us as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.